What's up, everyone? Welcome again to another episode of Doc's Point of View Podcast. My name is Trey. I am your host, as always. And today I interviewed Aaron. He is a second-class lab tech. He's a pretty cool dude. I enjoyed our conversation. We kind of just got in the nitty-gritty of what a lab tech does and some of the intricacies of working the bench, blood bank, anything and everything about being a lab tech and kind of the places you can go as a lab tech. We also talked about some of our family who have served in the military. And we also kind of get into some of the EFMP type stuff that kind of affects where you get stationed and how it may dictate what you do and where you go in the military. You ever been walking through the Navy Exchange and wonder why all the Naval Pride and Heritage gear is horrifically ugly and you wouldn't actually wear it? Have you ever wanted some really cool gear and you just don't know where to go? Well, I got you, fam. Go to dgutsapparel.com immediately. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear. You'll actually wear in public. Uh, we're working on new designs all the time, open to ideas. We're trying to create a brand that uh, lets you display that pride, but doesn't make you cringe. Uh, also, if you're willing to and you're able to, please go to patreon.com slash podcast. Pick one of the five tiers and become a patron today. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Welcome to the show. Let me get this. Let me let me try to write off an intro for you. You're an HM2. Mm-hmm. You've been in for nine to ten years. Nine and a half. You're a lab tech. Mm-hmm. You're you are a military brat. I am. Multiple generations. Yep. And you've done mainly blue side, and this is your first green side. Yep, that'd be right. Uh, I call that successful. <laughs> All right, so I'll open up to you. Uh, please tell me who you are. You can, and um, as we have discussed over the last day or so, I want to get kind of into the like the background of your your family history with the military, and, and I can share some some stuff about mine as well. So I'll leave it up to you from here. Yep. So uh, I'm Aaron. Been in nine and a half years. Third generation uh, military. I had both my grandfathers served in World War II. Had an uncle served in like towards the end of like desert storm my dad did the peacekeeping operation in kosovo and then four tours in iraq and afghanistan and then now here i am at my like fifth duty station basically you said your your granddad and your dad was in Mm -hmm. they're both army uh grandfather was air force he did four years my dad joined the army and did 24. yeah so my my wife's Granddad, he's 99, World War II vet, and we, we spoke about this the other day. He he was Army before the Air Force. Right. So he was the, Air, the Army, Air Force, whatever it was called. And then he also stayed in for 30 years, and he did a, pretty much a full career also in the Air Force, Air Force. So he has like these campaign medals from the Army and the Air Force, but the they were they were the same campaign. It was yeah. it was kind of cool. That's cool. And he uh, he's been, he's been slowly giving me some of the mem- memorabilia from like World War II time, some cool stuff. I, I was going to bring it into work and show a few people at some point. But yeah, and then that's the only person I think on her her family, my side of the family. It's both my grandparents. My my mom's dad. He was Navy fourteen years. MMC submarine and air, aircraft carriers. And then my dad's dad was drafted in the army and did nothing but reserves. He didn't do anything. <laughs> he <laughs> was, he's my smarter than most of us. He would think about it. What's cool is I had, he passed away a few years ago, like right, right before I joined. And, uh, I got to look at all his boot camp photos, mm-hmm. like him digging like Fox, tri- Fox holes. And before I joined, he told me a bunch of stories about like how they'd make him dig a Fox, a foxhole, throw their cigarette in it and tell them to fill it back up and then dig another one. Like the, but, the, you know, the stereotypical stories you hear about, uh, like grandparents who went 
into the military a, a while ago. Yeah. But I like how back then I think about it because he talks about it sometimes because he did enlisted for eight years. And I remember one day we had to like, we were going to go meet him at work and he was working two jobs while being in the army. So he's enlisted and he was, he made E5 and he was working at McDonald's just to like help pay for like two kids. Yeah. I was like, and nowadays, like, I don't have to really worry about that. My wife works just to have, so we have extra spending money, not to sustain life. Basically. My pay is, you know, adequate. And then my wife works part time. She has a skilled job. She's a nurse, but she only works part time. So that's like extra money that we save and stuff. Uh, what, what, uh, were there any campaign campaigns or conflicts that your grandparents or your grand, your granddad or your dad was in? Uh, my, I don't really, I didn't really know my grandparents. They died when I was young, but I just yeah. know they served like during world war two. No one really ever like talked about what they did. My dad served during operation was it, enduring freedom. And then the one after like, so like the kickoff to Iraq and Afghanistan was, was him. He was like when the army went the, like the next year after 9-11, he was one of the first ones down there as a pilot. Did he ever talk to you about it? Or do you know anything he about his time? Like, he mentioned like some things. He he went through some PTSD when he got back from his second deployment. So it was like mm-hmm. real, like his real like combat deployment stuff. He just mentioned certain things like pilots are supposed to wear their, their flax on their chest like while they're flying. Where they were like, nope, they took them off, put them under their seats. Because they didn't care if someone was going to shoot them through the the plexiglass from their cockpits, the underneath the pilot seats were actually thinner metal and the AK rounds would go through. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so they were more worried about getting shot up from, from the bottom, from the bottom than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Uh, when did he get out? Uh, he retired. So he did 20 years? In 24. He retired in like 2000, right around 2012, I want to think. And you joined 20, right after that. I joined 2014. 2014. Dang, so y'all are almost in at the same time. Almost. But completely different branches. Yeah. I assume he made it, what, E8? Oh, no, he went uh, He went the warrant officer program. He made oh, he w, he okay. W4 so before he, went, he retired. He made E6 and then went warrant mm-hmm. and then made W4. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, he was he was slated to make W5, but he was like, I don't like office jobs. He wanted to fly. That was his whole passion. Yeah. So then, like, when you make W5, he was telling me, your fly hours drop because you're not going to fly. You're going to sit there and monitor the whole yeah, squadron. I mean, higher up you go, the less technical your job gets, the yeah, more you're doing. He just want to deal with it. And he was like, he thought 24 I mean, years was That's what warrant enough. officers supposed to be. They're supposed to be like the technical. They are still doing the job. He ended up, he saw like his career path was, he was maintenance for the helo he worked on, became a pilot for the aircraft and then became a maintenance test pilot for the aircraft so like if an aircraft goes down and they repair something on it you have to go through a maintenance test flight first before it can go back into service so he would fly it to make sure it still worked properly that sounds terrible i wouldn't do that so he was he would be in there with his guys like actually working on the aircraft like with the other enlisted guys instead of just sitting back like with the other the regular o's basically oh yeah that takes some bravery not everyone's cut out no not not everyone's uh built like that no he (laughs) Oh, he just did it. He's been doing his whole career. So he was like, it's another check in the box for me. So just tying it back into you, what his time in, does that have any uh, binding on why you joined? It or? did. I kind of thought it was family tradition. Like yeah. you serve, right? Our whole family is served basically. Yeah. And then now I kind of see where he's coming from because he didn't initially want me to join. But when I pushed saying I'm going to join, he was kind of like, okay. Yeah, it's you do you, it's your choice. See, I don't I don't have that connection because I didn't even know about my grandparents' service. Really, they didn't really talk about it much, so there wasn't there wasn't this like compelling or there wasn't this feeling of like, hey, I need to serve because my grandparents served. It was more of like I'm tired of doing minimum wage jobs, yeah. and I want to do something that I know will be structured and will help me get out of this mundane life i guess yeah i think i don't know i had i think at high school i knew i was going to join yeah and i wasn't i wasn't that guy i tried college and then uh, dropped out that was they told me to go through college first so like before I, I did three and a half years of college before i joined up if i if i had anybody from my family talk or any close friends i i 
straight up tell them go to college and the officer life the quality of life is just better than enlisted all right let's go back to the beginning though so you, you joined 2014 mm-hmm. what month march march we were at that with then we, me and you were there at the same time because i was there in may i i graduated like july time frame you probably graduated but like the month after i got there you're talking like core school talking about boot camp boot camp i graduated in may okay so you graduated when i got there okay so yeah oh you went to core school and then what was, what was the platform that your first duty station uh hospital like a major hospital yeah one of the like one of the trauma centers here but you were but you went to c school first right yeah, so i pipeline my first two years in the navy was was pipeline schooling so boot camp core school lab school fmtb and i hit my first command in 2016 and the the first like full week I was there, I hit my two year mark. Well, okay, so I mean, I, I know a ton of people go through that that type of platform or pipeline. I never, yeah, I haven't heard many people where they did all that and FMTB, which I, I think that's the right way to do it to get everything done with. Because now you have three full years, maybe four, of that person doing just their job, yep, and they're fully trained. Because they try to do for lab techs, like my first set of orders for four years for your orders and lab is going to go green side like, yeah you're going to go you, you're going to go you're going to bounce around from hospital clinic to green hospital clinic to green unless somehow you got to a map station so uh how was your first duty station as a fresh lab tech at a hospital stressful i say stressful because i asked to go work in the blood bank which is going through i didn't know at the time like a doesn't severe, everybody though <laughs> no one wants to do blood bank actually I thought everybody wanted to do blood bank. Most lab techs don't like to have that direct responsibility to where like if I make a mistake, a patient will die and they will do a full investigation and come back like onto me because I made the mistake. Yeah, that would so that'd that'd be too like stressful su- for me. So super stressful people. So but I don't mind it because I was that's my favorite section in, in lab school. So I asked to go there. There's a huge uh, personnel turnover going on. And then. uh we were also working on going from just regular hospital to like the trauma certification. So we brought on a lot of new stuff that the CO wanted done. And it was just one thing after another, one thing after another, like, like, okay, hit this wicket. Cool. Next, next, next. Yeah. And you had to, I learned a lot about lab when I had to do the, an, an orientate or a rotation through the hospital and the ER works very close with the lab, like lab, rad and ER all basically one big place they all work together side by side. It seems like I didn't realize the extent of the PQS that you have to do in lab for each like bench. Mm-hmm. And then you have blood bank and the blood bank's important to like RC duty because that's, that's like your main job. It's my only job in basically. a role yep. the echelon that we are in. So like, I didn't know like you have to be smart for one being lab tech. I, I think you do. <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've seen plenty of people drop out and, and you have to be like, I don't know, very detail oriented Yeah, and uh, not, I, I think if you're OCD, you probably wouldn't be good. You probably lose your mind because there's just too many samples and too many little things that you could, you can be OCD and actually it makes sense. We keep things in order. Like if you have a process that's not works. true OCD, then no, so, you can't be like compulsive OCD. You can yeah. be like minor OCD and it works out just fine. Yeah. Organized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be very organized if you're going to be in lab, but I wouldn't ever want to do it. That's too much for me. Um, but how is, overall, do you enjoy being in lab, or do you wish you would have not done the pipeline and just been like a general duty corpsman? I didn't choose the pipeline. I wanted to go to a command and kind of like bounce around and see what I actually like to do. So initially I had orders to um, duty station on the West Coast in the middle of, and in the middle of course school, my orders got changed to lab school. And then the, the instructors came and talked to us that got, cause it was like 12 of us that got our orders changed. And they told us like, no one from the fleet's joining. We just dropped 20 of the 30 Navy students in the class ahead of you guys for, cause they failed the test and we need seats filled. So, so you like, were just the first person they saw basically. I had prereqs already done cause I went through college and had chemistry and biology already done. So like, yeah, here you go. Yeah, so if you do college before you join and you don't join as an officer, 
get wrecked because you may get pulled because of those few yeah. credits you have. You get pulled. Yep. So if you're going to go to college, I just finish just, and try to just commission. finish it in commission because you don't want to be that guy that's like halfway through and they're like, hey, this guy meets all the requirements already. Yeah, but I took it like I'm not going to fail because you could fail out of the school. It's pretty It's think of your college level courses and you're taking two tests a week. And then you just, you keep going. It's like that same mindset the whole time. Because A school was just like that. It was like fire hose. And you're taking a test like every day, if not every, or every other day, if not every mm-hmm. every day. You think like organic chemistry. Like you can do a whole semester of college on organic chemistry. That was one month for us. Yeah, that would that would blow. I, I've taken chemistry one and two, biology one and two, and then A&P one, like on my own time. Mm-hmm. And I would never... I would I would never want to do it faster than the eight week course than that that I that I did. Right, it was it was like t- it was too much. Eight weeks was too much for me, but I was also doing like other classes on top of it. But the, that's how like the that's like how every school we do in the Navy, at least for corpsmen, it's I'm going to send you an overload amount of information and I'm going to test you on it like in the next day or so. I hope you pass, kind of thing. Pretty much. Yeah, that would scare me. I would, I would be like very anxious going through school like that. Oh, there's a there's a day I was staying up studying for a test. I didn't realize it was three in the morning. My wife comes out, grabs me, and is like, "You have PT in two hours. You need to go to sleep." How was the what was the transition like from A school to C school? Because I never had C school. They treat you different. Like you know, in A school, like. You're still new to the Navy. It's kind of like gotta boot be, camp. You got to be babysat yeah. over and over again. When you get to C school, because I was integrated with the Army, we were treated as fleet returnees. So we were able to like have our cell phones on us. We were able to like be adults. If we had appointments, we just tell the Navy side, like, hey, we have an appointment for this. Go, you go take care of this stuff. We didn't have to eat at the DFAC, the Army Chow Hall. We could go out in town and go eat if we wanted to. There are days we'd see our instructors out in town eating. And then... You go back to go back to class. You're done by four o'clock. So big boy rules. Mm-hmm. So yep. I, I think that's interesting because what what's the difference between you the day before you graduate A school and you the day after when you check into C school? Nothing. Nothing. So why do they why do they treat people differently? Uh, not and it's not a, a slight yeah. change. It's a that's it's a, a night and day. Yeah, because I even because lab school is uh, for is it. 18 months so like the first seven months you're didactic i got because it was so long i was able to actually move my wife down to san antonio so i actually lived out in town yeah it's one of the schools that rates mm-hmm. like living off base so i lived in an apartment out in town so that that don't seem bad at all i was, was I, a, a year and a half of school sounds pretty cool it was chill yeah like that was it, looking back like it was stressful but i'd rather be doing that sometimes than full like 12 hour patient workload like when I went to CCC school, it was a month long, and I was in a, you know, a hotel for that month by myself. It was like a, it was big boy rules. Yeah. Be here at eight. I'm going to start at eight o'clock. If you're here or not here, and if you miss too much time, we'll fail you. Like, and mm-hmm. then we had like an hour, you know, hour lunch to go grab whatever food we want and be back for the rest of the class, and you know. If we want, if we needed to stay late, we'd stay late. If we wanted to push, we'd agree as a group, push through stuff. Like it was, a, I'm not going to call it a vacation, but it was definitely a relaxing one month yeah. of my time. For us, because we were integrated with the, the Army students, they were trying to get their MOS. We already had one as a corpsman. So if we had failed, we at least can fall back and be a corpsman. Whereas for like the Army guys, if they failed, they had to be reclassed to a new MOS. Oh, so like, really? Because okay. corpsmen, you can send a corpsman anywhere and do anything. But for like Army and Air Force, they are specifically trained to do that job and that job only. Which yeah. Which is kind of nice being corpsman because I can, I'm a lab tech. But like when I got stationed at MEPS, it wasn't a lab. I was doing quad zero stuff. I've always tried to have conversations about, with people about like, what do you think is better that way or the way we do it? Where we have... Because, like, I don't know how the Army does advancement, but it is kind of overwhelming where I'm a general duty corpsman, but I have to know some of your job as a lab tech, some of your job as a dental tech, some of your job as a whatever else tech you want to put in the blank. Yep. And vice versa, you as a lab tech have to know a lot of general duty corpsmen 
and the, and a little bit of everyone else's tech. Why can't we like why is it why isn't there an advancement way where it's NEC based? That's how the Army and Air Force do it. Like I have had Air Force friends still from core school when I was going through it. They they're E seven E eight already. Really? Mm-hmm. And then I've had Army. I have like Army lab guys that I still kind of contact with. They're uh, they're E sixes because they only get tested on. And they also have their score sheet for what they have to do, like hit their wickets, kind of like similar to the Marine Corps. They right? have like line scores and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wish, I wish we had something like that. Maybe one day it, it will change. It's gonna always change over time, but I, I, it'd be, it's exciting to think about to see like, hey, what's it gonna be like in 10, 20 years? I hope for the better. I mean, retention's really low. You gotta Navy has to figure something out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have no idea how to fix retention. If someone, if, if the MCPON came and asked me, how would you fix it? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, the superficial answers that you hear on online is like, give us beards or. Yeah, that'd only be good for like two months. Cause that'd be would, cool for like two months. And then people are like, all right, that wasn't enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's a, that's a steep. I think that's why they haven't approved beards yet. Cause it'd be just, we keep giving the, somebody was doing, things. they did a new, a new study like within this last year. And it was supposedly like routed up to the CNO for like, you know, review and stuff. But we don't have a CNO right now. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, we do. I'm not trying to get political. We do have a CNO. It's just what's been going on 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 the upper hills. The political part of it. Yeah. 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 I I saw something in the in the news about that. Yeah. Above our pay grade. Yep. Not worried about it. So, yeah, I think it would be really cool um, if if I'm a lab tech. I get graded on how well I, how well I am as a lab tech because you are going to each duty station as a lab tech. I am. You're not going there as a general duty corpsman. Sometimes, like special duty assignments, sure. Yeah, you can go do a special duty assignment, but that's usually a one tour yep. to two tour to a two tour thing. So why can't we do it? You know, by NEC because that's my disadvantage. I don't do direct patient care. Half of the tests coming up in couple weeks is patient care yeah but if i struggle with that and if the test is like all encompassing i can't go into a lab and work the bench nope you can't you also can't walk into a sick call clinic and run it flawlessly nope you could probably limp through it oh i'd I'd limp and but it doesn't work that way for general duty to a tech field techs because you are corman first you usually can figure it out but not the other way around. It takes a lot of a lot of OGT. I mean, your school is seven month didactic, and then like a year of clinicals, right? It's like seven and eight. Seven and eight. Okay. Yeah. So I, I can't math. Okay. I can't either. I forget. But either uh, way, you had a lot of clinicals before they said he's a good lab mm-hmm. tech. He he passes. You know. Yep. I I worked. I I may have told you, but I've worked lab. That was my first assignment as a general duty quad zero. I worked. You worked the front desk and you did and phlebotomy. Front desk and did phlebotomy. I did learn some stuff in the back, and it was interesting. But looking back now, I'm like, man, I don't want to deal with like, I'm not all that body fluids. Nope, it's a lot. That's why I did. That's why I chose blood bank. I only do with one thing. Yeah, because when you have like, like all the urine and all the blood, all the swabs, whatever came out of someone's nose or throat, you know. When I went to my overseas duty station after I got off that MEP station, um, that my first duty station blood bank was separated from the rest of the lab, so I only did blood bank oh, the whole okay. time, and it made sense because you needed dedicated staff for the trauma center. Because I've always I've always seen you walk in a lab usually you have a front desk area, lobby, you had the phlebotomy area, and mm-hmm. then in the back, which is where all, where all you guys work, yep. and you have the benches, mm-hmm. and you have like what Kim, Kim, and everybody goes like Kim Heem. Hematology. And hematology. And, and then, you then have blood bank. And blood then bank. micro has its own like room because they have incubators and fridges they have to keep. And the dishes, right? Yep. Yeah. So I, I've like I've dabbled in like some of the knowledge there, but so when way I was, over my head. Oh yeah. When way I was in the overseas station, I had to get trained on all four benches. And then for like microbiology, there was only three of us that were fully trained to work microbiology. So on top of like standing lab duty. I'd have to also do microbiology. So like some weekends, let's say 
this weekend I have core lab duty where I have to sit work all weekend in the in the main lab, and then next weekend I have microbiology duty where I have to go read plates, put in results, try to ID the bug, and push it out to providers over the weekend. And I didn't realize, like, yeah, you do you do run samples in a some sort sort of machine, mm-hmm. and it'll tell you like numbers or whatever. But there there's also like when you have to look through a microscope, like. That's like you literally counting. Yep. Or that's you literally identifying something and you're like, that looks like this in this book. And it's almost a little bit subjective. Some of it can be, yeah. And that's scary to know that medicine is, well, I mean, obviously medicine is subjective. I mean, that's also why they have those like three month PQSs because you're going to like, yeah, for hematology, for example, you will go through at least 20 slides, like 20 bloodstain slides and you're going to get graded on it if you don't past those 20 you're going to get another set of 20 and be like hey keep going you're going to make sure you know what you're looking at before you start you pushing out results because whatever you put in the computer the provider is going to start giving out medication for that patient yeah based on those results so then if your results are wrong because the pathologist will review it and amend it you can you can harm patients over time with like core lab so we call core lab is chem ua and hematology. you can really mess up patient care mm-hmm. really mess it up do you think the I mean, it's good that you are trained on all sections, right? But do you think it's bad practice for you to go in one day, work one bench, and then maybe next week you go in and work a different bench? If you're a generalist, that's not bad because it keeps your skills up in the general sense. Yeah. Like for me as a blood banker, I'm already, it's like a specialty field in a sense. Since I'm a blood banker, it's going to, everyone's going to see it on my evals. I'm kind of already, my name is out there in the blood bank community for certain people. So anytime I go somewhere like, oh, you did blood bank, go work in our blood bank. We need help all the time. Because it's a very highly skilled. I've been doing it, been in nine years. I've done blood banking for seven years. So the, your whole time? Because mm-hmm. two years of school. Mm-hmm. The only only time I didn't do blood just blood banking was when I was overseas because I had to do all the benches. That was it. But I've always I've always been in a blood bank somewhere working. Lab is so like complex to me. People, people don't, I don't think people give it the justice it, it deserves. Okay. We don't, most lab techs don't care. Most just think you're a bunch of nerds, usually. Oh, you already know, I'm a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Star yeah. Wars stuff. Same. <laughs> Comes out next week. Yeah, excited. <laughs> uh, okay, so you did a hospital, your first command, and then what? I did a hospital for my second command. So, oh, okay. And back then you did four-year orders, right? Mm-hmm. On your first tour? Yep. And then you... Then you went back to back shore. Not by choice. I tried to go to like a ship. But you said you said you went overseas, right? I did. I was at an overseas and at, hospital. At some point overseas counted as your like. If you did two back to back overseas, overseas, I was told that's where it counts as like sea sh- time. Like if I did Japan and then did Guam, that would count as I had, sea. If I looked into it, I'm sure I could find something written down where it says like, but I, I'm pretty sure I can't. I hope no one verifies this, but I'm pretty sure like overseas shore counted as it was considered as your like sea shore rotation at some point, but I don't think it is like that anymore. Now it's like, no, no dude, that's a, that's a shore duty. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I had to leave that shark, that command early cause my, my kids got put on EFMP, exceptional family program and talking with the detailers. I didn't really have a conversation. It was like, here's your orders to, to this command. And I asked why, because it wasn't on the list of like sanctioned commands for the EFMP instruction. Yeah. And he told me, per the special placement detailer, you need C orders. This is a C billet that needs a lab tech. Take it or leave it. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh. And in the email, he wrote it like that, like take it or leave it. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't my choice. Like you're, you already gave me the orders. What do you want me to do? Hey Amen. Um, from my experience, you want to be negotiating through my Navy assignment. Because if you're getting detailers calling you, they're probably going to offer you like a certain amount of jobs mm-hmm. or billets, sorry. Or maybe they only offer you one <laughs> and they're like, this is what you get. Take it. Yeah. I'd rather roll my dice with the seven picks on my Navy assignment. Okay. So, well, then your time overseas is pretty much the same thing then, right? Mm-hmm. Except you said you had to be qualified on all sections because yeah. it's overseas and you have a little bit more responsibility, I guess. When you're the only like hospital for all of that area, that area, basically yeah, 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 for yeah. all the movements for what we have out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're taking care of all their dependents plus the service members too. 
Yeah. So like my first command was strictly military. I ne- I didn't know what treating dependents were was like. I only saw like because yeah. my little small branch clinic was treating. Our patient load was the shore duty aviation uh, crew or you know sailors on that base. The sea duty aviation went to aviation med, but mm-hmm. it's in the same building. So like. I never saw a dependent until I got to my second duty station and I got thrown into pediatrics and that was a rude awakening for me to go from healthy 18 to 40 year olds to zero, like seven day olds to 18 year olds. We be in the lab, you see everybody just because like the branch clinics take care of the service members, but if they can't draw the sample they send them to the main lab to get their samples drawn because we can collect it store it properly if we can't process it there we could send it to uh, another facility like out in town that'll run it for us because there's a contract in place i i remember so i i had like a year of time doing phlebotomy and then when i went to my second command like i used that to my advantage so like impedes that hospital had a rule where lab didn't touch they didn't. They did not do phlebotomy on anybody under twelve months. Mm-hmm. They sent them back to us, and we had we would have to do the you know blood draw, and that's hard on a twelve month old baby or less. Mm-hmm. You have to be pretty skilled, pretty good at what you do, right? <laughs> uh, to hit a vein. Oh yeah. And then I've seen some pretty crazy ways to get uh, nothing like unsanctioned, but like creative ways to get you know a blood sample. I've had to do parents hold their kids. I've the had papoose. Mm-hmm. You ever use that? The mm-hmm. straight board? It's a blue, it's called a papoose. It's a blue straight board, like a like a psych ward jacket. Okay. But it's a flat board with a foam cushion. And then it has two holes for the arms. So you'd you'd put you'd put one of the arms through the holes that you're gonna draw blood from, and then the straps wrap around the torso, and then the other strap on the other side wraps around the torso with the arm tied in and then it wraps around the legs and then okay. you put the parent at the top of the bed oh, okay so lab doesn't have beds we have to have chairs yeah and so that's, that's that's the other thing we couldn't use that because we can't just lay a kid on the floor yeah it, exactly and so we would that's probably a good reason why we did it because we put the you know a, we would do all kinds of anybody that was pediatric we would draw their blood because mm-hmm. like you said um we we were the we were the efmp like um, office. So we also saw, and we had the only special needs, um, doctor in the region. So we saw all the special needs kids. So, uh, if you ever, if you ever worked with special needs kids, sometimes it's difficult to do patient care on them because they don't, there's the sensory, the, the environment, they, they sometimes don't cooperate the best. Right. So we'd have to, I mean, I'd have to put a, you know, a four-year-old in a papoose and it took four or five people to hold that kid down just to get a sample and Mm -hmm. you have to hold them down so you don't hurt them yeah because hurt you or hurt yourself because that needle will yeah that needle will fly i'm telling you right now kids shoulder joints are one of the most flexible things i've ever seen like i could hold a kid by um like their upper arm and their lower arm and they can still move their ac and you would not be able to, or if they twist their shoulder, even though you're holding two points of contact on their arm, their veins would move oh, yeah. and you, and roll. And man, it was difficult. Uh, yeah, it, it was a good learning experience, but it was very difficult uh, doing that type of patient care. So after that, uh, after that blue side command, you went to MEPS duty? No, I went. To Greenside Command. Okay, so MEPS so, was on on the way to that second Blue Side Command just because of oh, COVID. Oh, okay. Because of COVID, I couldn't. My detail was like, you can go work at MEPS or you can take leave. Okay. And I didn't know how long this hold was going to be. So you didn't want to waste all your leave days? Well, they were like two weeks. No big, no big deal. You're already on your Okay, PCS so you're basically leave. just TAD to I was TAD to that, to that MEPS station. Okay, so but you it was weren't. TAD'd for seven months. Uh, so like it's, okay. it came, it, like on my history of assignments is on that station is, is an assignment I was at. Cause I was there for, cause so you're long. there long enough. Like yeah, it, I had to get an eval yeah, while dude. I was there and that was weird. Cause it was a joint command. So it was like an army CO army XO 
Marine Corps ops officer and a Navy senior chief as the SEO. Did it make you wish you went back to doing lab tech? Sometimes because I became a record player. Yeah. I mean, you've been through it before you get told to do something, right? Remember, if you remember anything of your map station, like days going through, like do this, do that, do that, do that every day, answering the same questions every day. And then, you know, people are going to mess certain things up. So you tell them, do this. You're that guy that walks down and be like, all right, <laughs> this part of the form, 10, of, 10 out of 20 of you are going to mess this up. Please don't be the group yeah. that, that keeps this alive. Because <laughs> like, there's only... This. Two of us as like, there's two, there's three corpsmen, two males and a female. So that also was a, a UA observer. And in the map station, they have a red tape line where you have to like stand behind this line to pee in the cup. Because of the instructions, I have to be able to see it leave your body. You have high school kids who are very shy, don't think, think I'm kidding. And they just walk up to the urinal and like hide themselves in the urinal. And I tell them to back up. And they're like, because they never, that's they not never, a normal thing. It's not a normal do. thing, but you brief them before they even go in there, like a full medical brief anyway. So you, I literally told this, the last thing I tell them to do, because it's the next thing we're about to go do. And they didn't believe me. And they thought I was just trying to like, look at them. Like, no, I, I don't I want to. to, I have to do this. Like, cause if you pop positive on a test or something happens and chain it, of custody is like, if it huge. seems like if I didn't have that chain of custody, I will get in trouble for that. I, I was at a command that got roped up into like an IG complaint regarding the UA. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, we did a mass UA and it was not ran well. And and it was probably because the people running it just didn't have that experience of running, you know, hundreds of people in at one day. And they probably just messed it up. Or the, the, the flow of, you know, a person walking in, getting it done and getting out probably wasn't the best Mm-mm. and or usually you or no never mind i'm not gonna say that yeah it just wasn't it, it didn't go well and i was, there's ig complaint put in and a bunch of people got questioned and it was it God. was all kinds of crazy anything especially with lab because we do with legal samples too like that chain of custody is no joke right because like what blood alcohol levels and stuff blood alcohol levels we don't even we won't even test them in our labs we will send them out to uh AFMI's. And yeah. then, they, but if the chain of custody is broken, they will write, um, they'll return it, the forms back to us saying unable to run due to chain of custody issue. And then that gets reported to like the CO who then comes down on the That's pathologist big, who comes down on no, us because no. it's someone's career slash like it's a legal thing. Yeah. And that person that probably is, is there for good reason is hoping that you break that mm-hmm. custody. Cause if it's broken, uh, that cases can be voided because yeah, there's drops. no evidence. Yeah, that kind of stuff is is interesting to learn and, you know, have reps in. Uh, When I was in that branch clinic, we often had the, we had a brig on the base and we'd often have the inmates, we were their medical. So Mm -hmm. like they'd come in and I always hated it, man. They'd they'd put the cover on their hands so you wouldn't see the handcuffs. Yeah. I'm like. They do that here. Just walk them in the back. If you're going to do that, if you're trying to hide it, just walk them in the back. They they still do that at this hospital where I'm pretty sure it's just breaks. normal. I mean, normal I, I'm just ignorant and that's just the way things are done. But if there's a back door and you don't want, you're hiding the handcuffs cause you don't want the general public to see if there's an inmate. Right. That's the logical reason why. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It, at your experience, they were they in uniform still. Oh like yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. They're in uniform here. They have them wear like the orange jumpsuits because here is like an actual mm-hmm. facility. The, mm-hmm. the brig we had was a, like a holding, a holding for, you know, the region, okay. for the region. Yeah. Yeah. So here, like they'll come to the hospital, be in the full jumpsuits, try to hide the chains, even though they're in full orange jumpsuit and they'll sit in the front of the lobby in the corner waiting for their turn to get their labs drawn for their medical yeah, stuff. They're like doing time. Yeah. 100%. The ones we have were waiting trial and stuff like that. No, these guys are like, they have two escorts with them. Like it's. Yeah, it was. So like joke. our duty at our clinic was doing the medic or giving medications to inmates. Like when you had duty, it was like the quarter deck duty, but yeah. we had, there's like multiple jobs within like medical related jobs within duty. And we'd have to go at night, give them the evening meds and stuff. And you had to count the narcotics. And that was always stressful. Oh, God, That was always stressful just cause like, you don't want that to ever be nope. a discrepancy. And I was, I would count things multiple times just to make sure like, Hey, this is a hundred percent. I do that. Now, like when being in the blood bank, I have to do inventory of all the blood. 
if there's anything missing and there's not a record of it, that's a big deal because blood people forget blood is considered a drug. Yes. So like, because you infuse I, it, yeah. I will get hemmed up if something isn't right, or if I can't have a reason why something doesn't match. We had um, when I did my rotation at ER, we had a guy come in and he had, it was a vehicle crash and the car landed on his forearm, and it was just like textbook compartment syndrome, like he couldn't touch it. Mm-hmm. His forearm was twice, two to three times the size of his other forearm, and it was like getting harder as like as the minutes go by, and. Obviously, he came in as like a trauma patient, right? Mm-hmm. And he came in, and the dude was like out of control pain, you know. Like, so we had the we had the surgeon come down. He's like, "Hey, man, uh, you need surgery." So I got to go since we're in rotation. I'm learning, right? I'm so, this is my clinical sustainment mm-hmm. time. So I was like, "Hey, I'm going to go watch the surgery. Never seen a fast shot of me." Yeah. So I got to go watch one for once, and then since I was like the fly on the wall in the in the in the OR, they're like, "Hey, we need to go get blood." So they made me go run down and get blood. The The blood bank was like putting it in the cooler, putting the tag on there. Mm-hmm. Don't touch my lock. You know, like I have a timer. There's like all this stuff. I know in exactly what you're talking about. I'm like. It's because we have to because we at the time, like if the blood doesn't stay in the cooler and it comes back to us out of temp, the blood is wasted. I have to throw it away. Um, and we would write that up in a report like, hey, this is how much blood is being issued out to this floor but they're only using a third of it. Everything else comes back to us wasted. But then the floor would be like, oh no, we packed the cooler right. Like we did exactly as you told us to. So we had to be that meticulous and packing the cooler and, and all that stuff to prove that it wasn't us. Cause there was, it became a he said, she said. It almost should be like, you take the blood. Uh, we do that for the ER. I don't like doing that personally. Cause I work in, so you work in pairs, right? So during the day, everybody's there. But at 1600, everybody's gone. So you just have you and your partner. Yeah, there's always two people in there. Sometimes. Like right now, on like when I was on night shift, there'd be days where I was by myself on night shift. No, thanks. I, I cannot run to the OR, back down to my floor, and pack another cooler for you, and then back up. I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to make a mistake. And that becomes a manning issue. Mm-hmm. And a serious one, because that is a, like a one-stop to- one failure. You know, that can't, that can't be the norm. Like, it is. It sounds like it's not, but it's, you shouldn't have to. You should always have a partner. Like certain labs only do two people on night anyway. And obviously, if a blood bank issue comes up, blood bank takes priority over everything. But like at this hospital, you have one tech on night shift is normal. You just have an on call person that yeah. you call them in and have them get here in twenty minutes. In that twenty minutes, I could have already issued four coolers of blood. Yeah. And then by that point, either the trauma is over or patient probably not lasting any longer than that yeah in the er there they have a protocol where you know the corpsman goes down and get the blood like that's the for like mass transfusion and yeah stuff. for the mass transfusion you have to run to us if they call that it's like a legit like call like hey we're we're, we're calling a mass transfusion and the corpsman's going to go get the blood and it's a very fast fast i'm like i can uh the last mass transfusion i ran i think i gave out 15 units in like 10 minutes Good grief. That's a lot. Like, I don't know. And sometimes they'll send some of that back because sometimes the surgeon just wants everything on the way. Like, I want it here now kind of thing. You, just you in understand. case. Yeah. We understand. I'm yeah. not going to argue the fact, you know, save this patient's life. Uh, and sometimes they use all 15 and I get nothing back. And the patient, I've had patients not make it after that. Yeah. And that was, that's the hardest part because since I don't see like patient directly, I've had it where like the whole procedure went smooth. Like we're talking no hiccups. Everything's like on point. Like I get a cooler ready. The runner's there to get the cooler and boom. And then you can see like, cause I've had nurses and doctors or be runners before. And then like their demeanor drops each time they come to grab the cooler. Yeah. And it's kind of like, but you, at the end of it, I had a, a nurse tell me like, everything's fine. And then he came back five minutes later. We're notifying next of kin. The patient's not going to make it. And you're like the last person we're thinking about telling mm-hmm. about patient's status. Yeah. But like from your shoes, hey, it's important. Like you're part of the team too. You just don't, you're not in front of the patient. Nope. I, I've learned over time that like every, every job in the hospital is critical. Like everyone has a very unique place in a patient care scenario where if they aren't there my patient probably gonna make it 
If like, lab isn't there for a hospital, you're not doing anything in that hospital. You're not. You're transport at that mm-hmm. point. Like, you're you're a rally point. You have to have a blood bank to have an LND. You have to have a blood bank to have an ER. You have to have a blood bank to have an OR. If you don't have a like a blood bank, all those all those four places just get shut down instantly. Yeah. And people lab don't and realize rad. that. Lab I, I red just, and farm. Yeah, lab red and farm, those are the biggest things. Everything else is just like extra type of care. My last my last hospital, we shipped out just about every patient. We had our ER became an urgent care and then it became a twenty four urgent care to a eighteen hour urgent care. And I'm like, that's a sick call clinic. Yeah. That's not urgent care. Well, I mean you can call it urgent care. Yeah. They didn't do anything. Like you could get X rays. Sure. It's basically like a like half of our ER here where it's a fast track. Yeah. It's like having just that. Ooh. That's the hospital I had. And from the th- from when I got there in 2016, from when I left in 2020, it went from a robust hospital down to a labor and delivery. So it was the ward. opposite for me. We went from like let's say like a robust hospital, you can do a lot of things, to a full trauma center. Like not not a big trauma center because I know there's there's larger ones that do more, but in yeah. the area here, we're the only trauma center within four hours. Yeah. So you're gonna we see just about everything. I. There's all there's traumas every day coming in. It could be the geriatric who fell, which is very serious, so it has to be a trauma in it, or it could be literally, you know, a plane crash or motor vehicle accident. I've had nights where the injuries have gone up, geriatric fall down the stairs and broke their ankle. I've had car crash, forearm broken, and then gunshot victim and then a stab victim all on the same night, and I'm like. I tell you who I respect a lot more now is respiratory techs. Yeah. That's a hard job. 100%. And <laughs> like intubating a patient and then running a vent and make sure you have all the settings right. Like you're like, you're super skilled. I had a, one of my chiefs one time, he, at my last command, he was, he was my chief at work. And then on the weekends, my wife would see him, you know, doing moonlighting as a respiratory tech. Because he was a respiratory tech by trade, made chief, one of the best chiefs I've ever seen. And then he'd also maintain his respiratory you know, license and skills at the local hospital. Nice. Like, hey, that, I respect that dude. So you did three duty stations. You're currently at a green side. You got you know, your FMF pin. Good deal. Um, the one pin I wanted to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like we said in the car, I wanted to kind of touch base on that EFMP stuff because I'm recently, like, one of my family members is going through it, and I know that you have multiple kids. I have both. I have two kids, and two both kids. my kids are on the program. And both of them are on the, your kids are cat, category five, five. Yep. which if people don't know, that's, like, on the upper end of how much uh, medical assets is needed. Whereas category one is like just monitoring and whatnot. I'm not going to go through, you know, category one is low, category five is high. And each one has a you know definition of what, you know, what that patient needs. But for military, the military spouse, I want to kind of get into like how that affects you. So like, when did your kids go on EFMP and then how does that affected your career and where you've been stationed or what jobs you've been get given and that kind of stuff. So it was March of 21 where my daughter was diagnosed with autism. And then April of 21, my son was diagnosed with autism. So I was at my overseas command. Okay. And unfortunately, the overseas command did not have the capabilities to, didn't have the needs to help my kids. So they were going to have to leave, which means my spouse and both my kids are going to leave the island. I then asked for a tour curtailment so I could leave early to stay with them because uh, DHA took over. You can't start care until you're at a permanent location that can render care. It's like referrals, appointments, like any of that stuff could not be done until we were back to the States. And knowing like what my family members going through, if you can't get that referral stuff going, like you're just, that's that's crappy on, on for the patient to have to sit there and just wait because yep. like for my my family member like or it's my wife right so she has 
she has a medical some medical stuff where she's going to get put on EFMP. And the hardest part about this whole situation is just trying to figure out like what exactly is going on and what exactly are we going to have to do about it. And then they're like, oh, uh, since we know what the diagnosis is going to be now, but it took months oh, yeah. to figure that out. It took months of going to get seen and they're like, oh, well, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, she got she had an appointment at this doctor's office. And they're like, okay, well, we will refer you to this other office and we'll see you and, and they'll see you in three months. Like three months of waiting? Oh, well, yeah. I have, we have like stuff going on. Like yep. stuff where she, like she ended up having to go to the ER a few times because like she needed care, but her referral's in another month or two. Yep. Like, come on. How's that? How's that adequate? That's what sucks about the whole thing. So we got back to the States July of 21. My kids didn't start getting treatment until October because we just got back. I had to ROM because I came from a high impacted COVID area. So you try to like schedule appointments when you like set up PCM, schedule appointments in the appointment get a referral. The referral gets reviewed by referral management. They find a place you're out in town. Then they contact you setting up meetings with them to like, see if that fits. Cause autism has to be a fit for the, the child. You can't just be like, they can go like this. It's autism is very specific to the person versus a generic, like workup patient workup kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's, if that it's complex, if that clinic didn't work out for, for my kids, we have to go find another clinic. Thankfully the, the very first clinic we were referred to, fits it has been great for the past two years um the other aspect is you have to know tricare like you have to know how tricare works and i didn't know how tricare works where aba therapy is the only type of medical therapy you can use for autism that tricare will pay for and if the center doesn't do what they're supposed to do they will they will not approve the treatment and then you're technically not supposed to go and get treatment and if you do you have to pay out of pocket for those services I mean, Tracker is just is another insurance company, and you got to yeah. know how to navigate it. They send me every month. They send me the billing statements for my kids, how much it costs, and like how much the the center charges, and how much the Tricare pays for. Like for both my kids, like if it wasn't for this program, I would be paying like six figures for my kids every year. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably not going to get out because no. you probably couldn't afford it, Mm-mm. right? Mm-mm. I I'm reenlisting on Friday, so. Whenever you yeah. put this out, like Friday. Yeah. So yeah, my, like I feel you on the F and P stuff, but um, because like I'm not. I mean, I I've been trying to get out <laughs> for years, but yeah. I, I just keep just life stuff is what keeps me in, and I mean I like what I do. Uh, but it has affected where you go, right? Mm-hmm. F and P. Technically, I'm only supposed to go to two duty stations on the west coast, one duty station on the southern coast, and then two duty stations on the east coast and this this current duty station isn't on that list but because there is care here and i needed a c rotation i was allowed to come and the, the shore command where you could be is mm-hmm. the same area so yep. it's the same thing oh yeah just because i mean ge- ge- geographically you're good uh for me i don't my my wife's gonna be like cat two cat three maybe so like well, it's funny when we were talking to like the psychiatrist and the overseas command when my kids got diagnosed, my wife's first question to me is, what does that mean for your career? Because I was, because if I can't promote, we're not going to have these care, like the care is going to actually start coming out of our pocket when, for money. So she was very worried, like, does this mean like your ability to advance is now diminished? Yeah. It's for three years, it was diminished because of timing. Like we learn about the evals and how we get stuff going when you leave a command early and you show up right at the end of an eval cycle when you're turning in your evals. As an E5, that'll screw you. I, here I am. Yeah. You know, E5, and I have a very small chance to pick up on this exam. Like, my best chance is actually next September to pick up. Yeah. I, I any If any E5 comes to me asking about eval or evals and advancement, it's like, hey, man, it's 90% timing for, for E5 to E6, I think. Like, as long as you're doing the, the, jo- the, the stuff to get the good evals, everything else is timing. Because once you have the right timing and you have the evals to back it up, you just got to go and cut the right score. But if you check in a command at the wrong time, bam, welcome P. Okay, well, there's three years down the drain. I got two welcome P's. See, yeah, that's what I'm so saying. That's what, that hurts a lot. And then you have like these phenomenal E5s who are 10, 12, 15 years deep. Mm-hmm. And you're like, 
why do we have seven and nine year first classes when we have these guys who have more experience are operating just as well, if not better than these fresh boot first classes like myself. (laughs) Right. And it just doesn't make sense to me. I Mm -hmm. wish there was a better way to promote, but you know, promotion also comes down to the member as well. So I mean, being a lab tech, I was, I promoted fast. I mean, I made E5 in four years. Yeah. Cause E3, Four is three and a half, so E five is supposed to be five and a half, but oh, the the new ladder came out and it yeah. changed a little bit. So I was on the the old ladder. So I made third class when that instruction, the map instruction changed, where you can map at short commands. I was mapped. I was one of the first. I was believe oh. one of the first times to get mapped under that new instruction. I was not. I, I got mapped to E five, but I made E four and E six off the exam because of timing. Yep. I came for E four. I came to a command with a transfer, a good rated and a good transfer eval. And I just need to take a test and score, you know, a 60 something. And then for E6, I had four years at a command where I built myself up from, you know, uh, I, I wanna say an MP up to a high, high EP. And I had the, I had the, the PMA to, I didn't need a high score to paint E6. Mm-hmm. But it was timing because I didn't I didn't pick up until I left that command, got to my command I'm at now, and I, I was like, I have a 4-7 going into the exam. If I don't make it with a 4-7, I definitely don't deserve it, right? Yeah, I have a 3.8. Yeah, so like you mathematically is difficult. I, if not... I have to cut like a 75, I think. If I And it's hard. I My scores went got lower at each rank. Like at E3 to E4, I was cutting 60s and 70s. E45, it got down in the 50s. And then I studied two months straight to make E6, and I still only cut like high 50s. And I was like, I I tried pretty hard, and it still was a very hard test. Uh, But but yeah, back to the EFMP. EFMP really, it it makes everything difficult. Uh, Well, just kids in general. Because kids go to school, yeah. kids ha- get sick. Um, and it's definitely not me trying to make an excuse, like using my kids no, no, as an no, excuse no. not to work. Like I want to work. Like I will, I will almost go anywhere. This is what I don't question people when when someone says, "Hey, I'm not going to be in to work till eight thirty because I have to drop my kids off." Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna question that. Or like you have to leave early. How many days a week? Uh, every day. Every day. I have to leave work by 4 o'clock. Well, I know that's the business hour, but if I don't leave at 4, my wife can't go to work, yeah. and I watch the kids. Like, I leave, I generally leave around 2.30, 2.40, yeah. just so, because my wife works, so she works, then I got to go home and watch the kids. But I try to make up for it on the front end where I'll be in 6.30, 7 o'clock, when normally no one's here until 7.38. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I try to make up, because I did that when I was flipped at the hospital platoon. I saw I had to do 12 hours. So I just made it work where like, hey, I'll come in at three in the afternoon and I'll get off at three in the morning. I'll still maintain Oof. a 12 hour shift. This is what I need for my family. Can you guys can you guys work with me on this? And then you can measure your chain of command off of how. How willing they are to manage that. And I've, I've like recently I've seen nothing but, you know, compliance, really. People, people, like in my, in my shop, like if you tell me you need to go somewhere, I'm not like. You just can't abuse that trust. Think like where we're at. You've been, you've your work has spoken for you to actually kind of get put up here for the most part. Yeah. And if you start abusing that trust that they kind of give you with that, they're gonna start reeling back some of that leniency they have on you. Yeah, yeah. That's the big yeah. thing. Like I have a thing today this afternoon, kind of like it's kind of like testing, see how I've been doing in the new job I'm doing. Yeah. If that doesn't go out over well. I'm gonna get it talking to of like, hey, what, how can we fix what's your deficiency? Yeah, we call that a counseling, right? <laughs> yeah. Depends on who's doing it. Is it one of the first classes or is it the chief? Doesn't matter, I guess. No. Uh, okay, so we'll wrap this up. Um, what's your if, if say I'm an HN? I just joined. What's your advice? What's your charge to me? Learn, learn your job, right? Don't. Don't go into your job trying to be clueless, like call it agent shrug. Don't just don't do that. Go and learn it. Like really be the subject matter expert of your job, because once you learn your job, your work life is going to be easy because like any like 
problems that come up for me, like in the in the blood bank side, I can spout an answer because I've just had the experience to know it. Right. That makes your work life so much easier. If you can any situation that comes up, you can handle it. You can give an answer or find a solution and then kind of move on and then always challenge yourself. Don't, don't just get stuck doing the same thing every day. If you like if you're mundane, you, you tell yourself, like, I'm bored at work. Go find something new to do. Go add one new thing that you can learn. It'll pay off in the long run. You may not see it right away, but it'll pay off. I 100% guarantee it. I like it. Genuine. I like it. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you for Uh, having me. Thank you for coming on the show. So, peace.